Uh, man, so fun to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline, and uh, I get to crack open the Bible with you today. I want to say a couple things real fast. Um, if you're here and you're not a Christian, so glad you're with us. Uh, it takes a lot of boldness to walk into a church. Maybe you've been hurt by the church in the past, and so being back is, is difficult. We're really glad you're with us, and uh, I'm especially excited about today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull it out and go to 1 John. You may not know where 1 John is. That's okay. It's going to be near the very, very, very back of your Bible. Uh, and that's where we're going to camp out, not just today, but really between now and leading all the way through the, the end of November and into our Advent series. So we're going to be in this book until Advent leading up into Christmas, and I'm stoked about all that this book is going to do in us and through us and for us. So uh, here, here's a couple things that I want to throw your way. If you're here and you would maybe classify yourself as someone that's a skeptic or a doubter or an atheist, someone that is uh, kind of uh, wrestling with the claims of Christianity or doesn't believe at all, this book is really helpful because you're hearing from someone that was an eyewitness of Jesus himself. We're actually going to be talking about um, th this, this guy who saw Jesus, who was a few feet away from Jesus when he died on a cross, and was one of the very first people to witness the resurrection of Jesus. So why that matters is you're not getting the secondhand information from someone else that wasn't there, but you're hearing from someone that personally knew Jesus and did life with Jesus and has a lot to say about him. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Would you just bring your doubt and your skepticism and all the questions that you have, bring those to the table each week because we're going to be able to interact with, with the, the claims of Christianity from someone that was actually there and saw it. That's, that's the first thing. Maybe you're not a doubter or a skeptic. Maybe you're someone that's church hurt. And so for you, this is just kind of a difficult deal. And let me just say, you're either church or, her, or you live in the Midwest because those are the exact same two categories. Um, everybody that lives in the Midwest has interacted with Christians, has interacted with the church on some level. And a lot of us have a bad taste in our mouth of Christianity because of the people that we've encountered. In fact, one of the big reasons why people don't believe in Jesus or Christianity as a whole is because they've met other people that claim to be Christians. This is a really helpful book because what's going to happen is, is John is going to give us a real look into what Jesus intended for Christianity to be. So again, this is like straight from the horse's mouth, not kind of a, a second or third hand witness. This is someone that was there and saw it, and he's going to be able to give us the essence of what real Christianity really is. And then finally, if you're like me and you struggle with doubt, as in doubting if God could love someone like you, or if you're like me and you, you feel like your battle with sin is an uphill battle that you just can't seem to win. Uh, or if you're just wondering, like, could Jesus really love a person as busted up and broken as me? Or may maybe I should have more assurance as a Christian than I have. And I, I doubt daily uh, where, I, where I'm at, where I stand with Jesus. This book was written so that Christians could have assurance of who they are in Jesus and what he's done. So this isn't meant to like beat you up. This isn't meant to cause you to question and doubt. This book was actually written so that you could have confidence and assurance of who Jesus is and what he's done in and for you. So, so stoked about this book, excited that we're going to jump in. And so since we're going to be in this for the next several weeks, I want to just introduce you today to the author of this book and to the book as a whole. This is going to be a little bit of a different day because we're not going to be just walking through one verse, uh, kind of verse by verse. We're going to walk through a couple different ideas and look at the book as a whole. So who, who is the author 
of this book? Well, obviously, like Christians believe that God authored the Bible. He inspired people to write the, to, to write the scriptures. So it's not that God wrote it down on a piece of paper and then handed it to us and said, here's my word. What, what he did was he actually used real people in real places and a real culture, and he inspired them in their writings to communicate his truth through them to other people. And so what's so fun about this is as you move from book to book, you're getting the personality of the author and you're getting a glimpse into who this person was and, and where they were writing and what type of situation was going on. So this is written by a guy named John. Maybe you know a lot about John the Apostle. Maybe you don't know anything. John was one of the 12 apostles. So if you think about the followers of Jesus, there was, uh, there was a lot of them. There's at times thousands of people that were following Jesus. But then there was a smaller crowd of people known as the 72. And the 72 were a little bit closer in, in, the, in the ministry of Jesus. They didn't just do life with Jesus, but they were also doing ministry alongside of Jesus. And then there was an even smaller group known as the 12. And the 12 were the people that Jesus handpicked to be his apostles, his disciples. These were the people that walked with him and they, they lived with him for three years, watched him raise people from the dead. They watched him heal the sick. They heard him as he preached sermons. And, and these were the people that were the eyewitnesses of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. John wasn't just in the 12. John was in a smaller group known as the three, Peter, James, and John. So even in the 12, Jesus had a few people that he would occasionally pull aside and, and they, they had almost a closer look into the life and ministry of Jesus. And so here's the big idea. This book was written by one of Jesus' closest friends. In fact, I love it. Um, in, in John's gospel, the, his, his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he refers to himself humorously in the third person as the one whom Jesus loved. And I love this because he, he doesn't want you to know who he is. He's kind of writing it anonymously, so he refers to himself in the third person. But he's always saying things that are really funny and trying to show you how awesome he is. Like uh, at, one, at one point in the story, him and Peter are running to the empty tomb because they heard that Jesus wasn't there. And it says that the apostle whom Jesus loved actually beat Peter to the tomb. So this is John's way of saying, hey guys, I'm really fast, and I just want you to know that I, I'm the one that Jesus loved. How, how fun is it that that's how he refers to himself, the apostle whom Jesus loved? Oh yeah, that's me. I'm that guy. Uh, he, here's another thing about John that's so fascinating is he was in many ways the last man standing. Here's what I mean. All the other apostles had died out by this time. So take uh, his, his own brother James. James was the first apostle to die. He was put to death by the king of the Jews at the time, a guy named King Herod. And then right after that, Paul. Paul was beheaded. Uh, for being a Christian. And then you have Peter the Apostle who is, who is crucified upside down. He said, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. I'm not even worthy to die in a similar fashion as he did, so crucify me upside down. And then James, the brother of Jesus, he was up on a roof, history tells us, and he was praying, and, 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 and Roman soldiers were surrounding him, demanding that he recant and, and say that Jesus is not Lord. James wouldn't do it, so they pushed him off of a two-story building. He fell down and broke his legs, and then they came down the building, and they bludgeoned Dame, James to death, uh, and, and he died that way. And so all of these apostles had been murdered, had been killed, and John, in many ways, is the last man standing. This book is written 
60 plus years after the resurrection of Jesus. So just wrap your head around that. Jesus had died and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven over 60 years by the time John is writing this letter to a group of churches. And here's John's story. Uh, John was at one point in his life captured for being a Christian by the Roman soldiers, and they were trying to, to persecute him and get him to recant and deny the divinity of Jesus. But in, so, so what they did to do that is they took John and they essentially boiled him to death very, very hot water on three separate occasions. They tried to boil him to death, but he didn't die, right? So he's kind of an old kind of rugged man uh, with lots of scars on his body. And after being almost boiled to death on three separate occasions, they exiled him to an island called Patmos, which is off of the, the western coast of Turkey. And there he just sat in prison, in exile on this island, away from family, away from friends, for years and years and years, just kind of waiting either to die or to be released. And here's how the story goes. True story. Uh, eventually the Roman soldiers just released John. By this point, he's in his 90s, almost 100 years old, and he slowly travels back to what we believe uh, Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, and he starts to visit all of these churches that 40 to 50 years prior, John had planted. And he's encouraging them, and he's exhorting them, and he's writing to them about the love of God. In fact, the love of God became a hallmark of the Apostle John's ministry, so much so that he began to get a nickname, the Apostle of love. There are stories of John in his 90s being unable to physically make it to the church. And so church leaders would come and they'd, they'd carry him into the church facility. And there in the church, he would barely be able to preach. He would just say, children, my little children is what he called the church, love one another. Love one another. John kept talking about love over and over and over is the hallmark of his ministry in the later part of his life, so much so that his nickname forever will be the Apostle of Love. This is the author of this book. Now, he, here's, here's what's crazy. If that's all you know of John, he's the Apostle of Love, this really devoted guy that went through a lot of suffering and a lot of persecution, the last man standing, all of his other friends have died, but he's stayed faithful to Jesus in his old age, and he's just exhorting people in the love of God. If that's all you know of John, then you only know half of his story. Here's what I want to show you today, just by way of intro to this book. Two things, very quickly. The first thing is I want you to see the transforming love of Jesus. If you're going to understand this book, and if you're going to understand where John is coming from, you need to understand the transforming love of Jesus. Here's what I mean. John was not always known as the apostle of love. In fact, early on, when Jesus met John, Jesus had a very, very different name for John because John was not a man marked by love for God. If anything, John was a man marked by deep and profound love for himself. Here is Jesus' nickname for John, Son of Thunder, which if you're Russell Westbrook is a pretty legit name, right? Son of Thunder. I'll take that as an OKC fan any day. But Jesus is not saying this about John as a compliment to him. Jesus is saying that like thunder, which is loud and flashy but doesn't have any real substance, this is how John is. Over and over in his life, John is the son of thunder. He comes into situations and rooms and, 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 and realities where he's just very loud and he's very opinionated and he's, he's flashy and he's all about himself, but there's no substance to the life of John whatsoever. John was a son of thunder. Let me just give you a few stories 
from the life of John. Here's one of them. Uh, John is walking with Jesus Jesus and the disciples, and John is the guy that starts up a conversation trying to figure out which one of the disciples was the greatest, and John was saying that he was. Right, so just picture this. They're walking with Jesus, and rather than being enamored with Jesus, John is like, hey guys, which, which one of us is the most awesome? Which one of us is the best? Which is the greatest? Who of us has the most power? And John was saying, I do. It's me. It's got to be me. And Jesus had to rebuke John just for being totally self-absorbed. Here's another instance in John's life. Um, At one point, John walks up to a man who is casting out demons from somebody in the name of Jesus. The problem is this guy wasn't a part of the 12 disciples, and so John feels the need to go up, and he gets onto the guy and says, hey, what are you doing? You can't cast out demons from this guy in the name of Jesus. Only the special people like us, only the 12 can claim the name of Jesus. And again, Jesus has to rebuke John and saying, dude, what are you doing? This guy's on our team. Here's another short cameo appearance from the life of John that's really interesting. This one's probably the most bizarre to me. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going on a mission trip, and he brings John and the other disciples. And they walk into a village. It's a Samaritan village. And Jesus begins to talk to those people and invite those people to come to himself. But the whole village rejects Jesus. And here's John's response. Rather than being like sad about that or rather than praying for them, this is what happens in Luke 9. And when his disciples, James and John, their brothers, saw the Samaritan village reject Jesus, they said, Lord, listen to this, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Like just let that sink in for just a minute. John's like, oh, they rejected you? Do you want me to call down fire from heaven and have it just destroy everybody? as if John even had the power to do that, right? Look at Jesus' response. It's total like face palm. He says, Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Jesus has just a lot to put up with with this guy. He's like, hey, they rejected you. Should I, should I go ahead and call down fire right now? Are we going to kill everybody? Is that what you want us to do? Because, man, I'm not going to have them reject you. And Jesus is like, no, dummy, you don't know the whole point of why I came. I came for these people, Right? Here's another cameo from his life. This one is just so ridiculous. John actually sends his mommy to ask Jesus for a promotion over the other apostles. And you might not actually believe that until I read the text. So let me just read it to you. Matthew 20, verse 20 says this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, came up to Jesus, look at this, with her sons. So this is not like a concerned mom talking to their boss. This is like, hey, can you go talk to my boss for me and we'll be with you? So she goes up to Jesus and James and John are next to her and look at what happens. Kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something and he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? By the way, when he says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink, he's talking about the cup of suffering that was reserved for him at the cross. He's saying, you, you think my kingdom is gonna come in power and, and, and be a political kingdom that's gonna dominate the Roman Empire. You have no idea what, it, what I'm about to endure. I'm about to lay my life down for you people and you're asking if you can sit on my right hand and my left. He goes on to say this. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? They responded, we are able. 
right? They're thinking wine, beer, serve it up, Jesus. We can drink that cup any day. He said to them, you will drink the cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. And look at this, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Whose idea was this? It was James' idea and John's idea. Here's the point. John, far before he becomes the apostle of love, he is a broken, messy man that's totally self-absorbed, that's completely enamored with his own power and his own strength and his own ability, and he is trying to show both himself and Jesus and other people in his life just how great and powerful he is. This is not a man that feels his need for Jesus. This is not a man that feels like he's lacking anything. This is a man who deep down is very insecure and is trying to come off with all this bravado and strength, and over and over and over, Jesus is having to rebuke him and get on to him because he misses the point. What happened to John? How does John go from being the son of thunder to the apostle of love? What sort of transformation happened internally for John to go from the son of thunder, totally self-absorbed, totally enamored with himself, to now being the apostle of love? Well, here's what happened. John was grabbed by the caller, by the love of God. And over decades, the love of Jesus began to transform this very hard-hearted, arrogant, flashy man from the son of thunder into the apostle of love. And this, friends, this is the story of Christianity. It's not a story of people who have it all together and can keep all the rules and can really get control of their own life and, 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 and pursue all of this own personal morality so that God would love them and be proud of them. This is a story of God taking very broken, very messy, very self-absorbed people like you and I and changing us literally from the inside out by his love. How does he do it? Well, in 1 John chapter 4, if you have your Bible, just go to chapter 4 and look at this. 1 John chapter 4, this is in verse 7, and I want you to listen. The son of thunder in his, in his young days now is this old 90-year-old man with scars on his body, and all he wants to talk about is the profound, deep love of Jesus for broken people. Look at what he says in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then he says this, in this is love, or in this rather, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son into the world, his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. And then look at these words, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Did you catch how many times love was used in that short set of verses? Love, love, love. It's the love of God. God is love. God sent his son into the world, which is the greatest act of love. The big idea of love is not that we loved God. It's that God loved us. This man was transformed by the love of God. 
here's what I want you to understand, and, and, and this is going to make the whole Bible make sense to you. If you don't get this, then this book will not make sense. This is not a book for people who feel good about their own ability to clean up their life and do all the right stuff and get control of their addictions and kind of rid themselves of sexual sin and rid themselves of alcohol addiction and rid themselves of, of the anger that lies dormant inside of their soul. This is not a book of rules and laws that God has given us so that you and I can do all the right things and climb this ladder so that one day, maybe, just maybe, if we're good enough, God might actually love us. No, no, this is a book about the love of God that is really summed up this way. It's not that we loved him. It's that he first loved us. See, the story goes not that we loved God. We were not seeking after God. We didn't want anything to do with God. We had actually written him off entirely. And yet in his mercy and in his profound love, God the Father looked down on humanity and rather than just leaving them to do whatever it is that they wanted to do and saying, yeah, that's your life. You've screwed it up. You just go enjoy that. What God does is in a heart of love, he sends Jesus into the world. And Jesus comes on a rescue mission after people who were lost and broken and in need. You've heard me say this before, but I think this is so important for you to get, that in the New Testament, what's so interesting is that the more religious people of the day constantly referred to people as sinners. But how does Jesus refer to people primarily in the New Testament? He refers to people as the lost ones. And there's all these stories of, of a lost coin and a lost sheep and a lost son. And the big idea is that you and I are lost now, if you've ever been lost, that's scary, but the, the, more the, the more terrifying thing is not to be the one that's lost, it's to be a parent and have a lost child. And when that happens to you as a parent, you freak out and you do whatever you need to do to come after your child, to grab your child, to find him or her because they're lost. And this is a story of God coming after, in a profound way, those of us who are lost. It's not a story of us flagging God down, looking for God, it's his pursuit after us. Here's what John says. He says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean, propitiation? It's a very big word. He, he, here's what it's talking about. It's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, that something happened when Jesus died that is the essence of love itself. I, I know that some of you didn't grow up in church, uh, I grew up in church, and I heard from, I, I was a wee little boy, I can't, I can't, can't remember not hearing this, that God loved me so much that he sent Jesus to die on a cross for me. But that never really made a lot of sense to me growing up. The way I heard that was kind of like this. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to run into a burning building and die for you. Or I, I heard it like this. God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to jump into the ocean and drown to death as a demonstration of his love. And I remember hearing this. He loved me so much he died. What does that have to do with anything? How does his death communicate love to me? But then I realized that when it says that he died for us, it doesn't mean that he died just as a demonstration of his love, but the very act of dying was in itself the most loving thing God could do. Because here's what he was doing. He was on the cross standing there in our place. 
And rather than demanding that I suffer for what I have done, Jesus comes and he lives the life that I never could have lived. And on the cross, he takes my sin on himself and Jesus dies in my place for all the brokenness and all the baggage and all the addiction and all the chaos inside of my soul. Jesus suffers there in my place. In other words, even though I deserve to be far from God, Jesus actually on the cross was separated from his Father so that you and I could be brought into a loving relationship with God the Father. This is the love of God, that he actually died on a cross to absorb all the justice that you and I deserve. So if you're in the room and you feel like you deserve to be crushed for your sins, if you're in the room and you feel like you you can't forgive yourself, you've got all this stuff going on and, and you've just got to try to try to become a better person and deal with it. This is not the story of the Bible. Jesus is actually holding out to you the transforming love of God as a free gift. Here's what that means. That means that there's literally nothing you have done ever to push yourself beyond the love of God. There's nothing that you could do to, to cause God to look at you and for his love not to be big enough to enter inside of your life and start to change you from the inside out. So it doesn't matter, even in this moment, what addiction you have or what brokenness you have or what's going on. Jesus is coming towards you today, not with a, a heart wanting to crush you, but with a heart of love and a heart of mercy. See, it's not just that Jesus ran into a burning building and died. We were in the building, burn, we were in the burning building, and he ran in, and in rescuing us, he himself gave his life. It's not just that he jumped in the ocean and drowned. We were the ones in the water drowning and flailing, and Jesus jumps into the water, and in rescuing us and getting us safely to shore, he gives his life for us. And this is love. It's not that you loved God. It has never been about your devotion, your morality, your good works, your love for God, ever. It's never been about that. It's always been about his radical, unexplainable, ridiculous love for us, even when we didn't deserve it. This is what changed John from the inside out. Transforming love of Jesus. Here's the second thing, and real quickly, the last thing that I want you to see, it's not just the transforming love of Jesus, I want you to see the trustworthiness of Jesus. Here's what I mean. I was talking to an atheist friend of mine, and he said, yeah, that makes sense that you would believe that, Andrew, about Jesus and him dying for you and him forgiving you of your sin. That makes sense because Christianity is for weak people. It's for people who need a crutch. It's for people that feel overwhelmed with their shame, so much so that they can't just get on with their life. They actually need something to make them feel better about themselves. And then my response to him was, yeah, Christianity is for weak people. <laughs> it's, very, it's for the, the most weak, the most vulnerable, the most broken. It's for people that have realized no matter what they do, they cannot deal with the shame in their soul. They can't, they can't forgive themselves enough. They can't clean up their lives enough. This is real for broken people. Christopher Hitchens, one of the uh, famous late atheists, he, he wrote uh, lots of different books, and, and one, of the, one of the things that he said in one of his books, I don't remember where he said it, but he said that Jesus is essentially the Santa Claus of adults, that he exists just to make us feel better about our lives. He, he's not real, but just belief in him makes us feel better about ourselves, and we can go about our lives with a little bit of help because Jesus is kind of just helping us along this idea that he would be real. Is that really true? Is Jesus just the Santa Claus for adults? Is, is, is Jesus just this idea that we've concocted and made up so that we can feel better about our own lives? 
Well, here's what's so crazy. Go back to chapter one of 1 John. I don't want you to see how John writes about this Jesus. Again, this is an eyewitness account. This is someone that knew him, and look at what he says in chapter one, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Did you see how he built? He said, we've, we've, we've heard about this Jesus. We've seen this Jesus, but we've also touched this Jesus. We've, we've examined him. Verse two, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is holding out Jesus to you, this, this one that came to love the world and to bring hope and forgiveness. And he's saying, I've seen him. I was with him. I was a few feet away when Jesus died. I was one of the very first people that saw Jesus rise from the dead. I was personally commissioned by the risen Jesus to go tell people this news. I've seen this. I've heard this. I've, I've touched him. I've felt him. He is real. Can I just ask you, why would John go through the things that he went through if this was just a completely made-up story? What does he have to gain? All of his friends had been murdered for following Jesus and claiming that he was alive. John himself had been boiled nearly to death on three separate occasions. He'd been arrested and thrown on an island for who knows how long, just exiled away from family and friends and his life, and he was stuck there without any contact with any other people. Why would he go through all of this for some story that he made up? John believed that this Jesus was the one that was from the beginning, who is God himself, who entered the world so that he could bring us back to God the Father and bring his love into our lives. It's pretty common for people today to say, well, yeah, you're just misunderstanding Jesus. He never meant to be worshiped as God. He never meant to be followed as God. He was just a moral teacher, and people have kind of blown up his teachings over time and blown it out of proportion and made him out to be something that he really isn't. The only problem with that is the very words of Jesus himself. Let me just give you this, this bullet list of things that Jesus said. In John, tw- in John 10, 20, Jesus said that he was God. In John 16, 28, Jesus said that he came down from heaven. In John 8, 39, Jesus said that he was sinless, right? That's kind of a big claim for any human to make. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus said that he can forgive sins, In John chapter 11, Jesus said that he was the only way. And then he says it again in chapter 14. In Matthew 14, Jesus actually accepted and received worship as God. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus announced what would happen in the future. He said that he would suffer and die and rise again from the dead on the third day. Like, how do you, how do you interact with all of this? Jesus is claiming so much more about himself than just this moral teacher or a philosophical leader. He's saying, I am God, I'm sinless, I'm the one that came for you. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, was the most unlikely person to become a Christian. He started out as an atheist, didn't believe in God at all. He eventually became an agnostic, and then through a weird series of events, he said that he could feel God chasing him down, and he called God the hound of heaven. 
that God was chasing him down like a hound would chase an animal in the woods. And eventually, he became so overwhelmed of God's divine pursuit of him that he just gave up and gave in to the love of God. He said, and he was sitting in his room in London, and he kneeled down on the ground, the most dejected convert in all of England. He didn't want to believe in God, but he couldn't help it anymore. He was being chased down. And later, he went on to write lots of great books, but one of his books that I love the most is a book called Mere Christianity. And just listen to his words in that book. Here's what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. This is what John is saying. John's saying, I went from being the son of thunder to the apostle of love, and it's because I encountered Jesus. He really is real. He entered our world, and he's offering love to you today. So here's how I want to close you out. There are those of you in the room, and you're not a Christian, and today you have to do something with this Jesus. What are you gonna do with him? Like, you've gotta explain him somehow. You gotta explain the empty tomb somehow. You gotta explain what he's doing and why all of these people gave their lives for him somehow. And here's the crazy part. As you are today, right now, as you are today, he is moving towards you, not with wrath and justice and anger, but with mercy and love and affection. And he knows your story. He knows what's inside of your soul. He knows what's going on. And all of that is something he's offered to take and in exchange, he wants to give you his very life in its place. He wants to come in and he wants to transform you from the inside out. He is not demanding that you clean up your act. He is saying, come as you are and I will love you and I will forgive you. I will give you a new identity and I will bring you to myself. This is what Christians in the room need. This is what non-Christians in the room we need. We all need this radical, unconditional love of Jesus today.